Welcome back to another episode of the Collective Evolution Show. Got a really interesting guest here. Uh, you know him from other interviews we've done. It's David Helfrich. He's a contributor here at The Pulse, but also the current state director of New Hampshire for Marianne Williamson. So he's been working pretty deeply in her campaign uh, for president, and he has a lot of interesting insight to share as we kind of explore this up and coming U.S. election. Obviously, coming off of the 2020 election, which is kind of like that COVID election where, you know, there was a lot of, of controversy, a lot of, of questions around election integrity. It created a lot of polarization. It was the Trump-Biden face-off that, you know, some people were expecting to go a different way. And then, of course, it ended up the way it did. And um, this has caused quite a rift in the nature of, of how people come together um, around elections and election discussion. And... Uh, Kind of going to talk about a little bit of that as well as how this current election is shaping up with two candidates that are um, really kind of representing something very different, both Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson, who David works for, um, are something that we haven't quite seen in the same way before. And I think this is kind of creating a lot of inspiration for, for some people, but it's also exposing a lot about what is going on within uh, the existing electoral system in the United States and the corruption of the DNC and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of fascinating discussion in this episode that I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting to. But just before we do, uh, we are celebrating our 15th year anniversary here as Collective Evolution. And if you've enjoyed our work and support our work and want to see us continue for years to come, please consider donating to our 15-year campaign right now. There will be a link below, but the donation link is collective-evolution.com forward slash donate. There will also be a link below in the description so you can check that out. That's it. That's all. Let's get on with the episode. David, brother, it's good to have you back on the show. It's been a little bit. It has. It has. It's always good to see you, brother. Good day. How's everything? Yeah. Oh, it's going good. I was I was going to say it's been a little hard to, you know, stay in touch the past like few weeks because you've been so busy. Why don't you, uh, you know, kind of give a rundown? Like what's the uh, what are you up to right now? Well, yeah, there's a lot going on as always. But, you know, I know um, today we're going to talk about something pretty interesting. So uh, I've been running political operations for Marion Williamson, specifically managing her strategy in New Hampshire, which, as a lot of people know, that's a key primary state. So been quite busy with that. And of course, I've got some other endeavors, but that's really keeping a lot of my focus right now. Yeah. So break that down a little bit. What do you mean uh, you're running political operations for Marianne Williamson? What does that look like? Sure. So specifically in New Hampshire, that means we're, we're setting strategy, we're reaching out, we're, we're sort of analyzing the electorate here, um, understanding the independent strength that is in New Hampshire and how we can appeal to that and how we can sort of craft our messaging and how Marianne really can resonate with a lot of these voters and, and also, you know, a larger political operation strategy where we, you know, discuss larger policy on a national level. Mm, mm, nice. Sounds like, sounds like a lot of fun, a lot of numbers, a lot of data, a lot of trying to understand people. Indeed. Indeed. Well, yeah, also, you know, really it's more about trying to connect with people, but you yeah. have to obviously have a foundational understanding of the data and the numbers, but beyond that, there's a lot of feeling that goes into it as well. You know, particularly when I'm out, uh, with Marianne, with people and just kind of seeing, you know, looking people in the eye and seeing what's important to them. That, that's really the most valuable data, I think, more so than than anything you can just, you know, get uh, delivered by the DNC or the state party that gives you voter files, because you can't really trust that, in my view. <laughs> and there's well, good reason for that, which we'll probably get into. But um, if you had to give a rundown, like kind of the biggest key points of Marianne's campaign, like what is what does she really stand for? 
You know, Marianne is sort of a throwback in the sense that she really represents a, a classical liberalism, probably that a lot of older people still have an institutional memory of when leaders like Eisenhower, FDR, JFK were at the helm. You know, they stand for more of a moral principle. She stands for a moral economy. She's um, She actually has created a, a new economic bill of rights. Um, so, you know, Marianne is somebody I think also who isn't afraid to dive into the consciousness aspect and even mm -hmm. spiritualize the political process. So, you know, so in that way, she, she kind of represents um, a classical liberalism, but also sort of a postmodernism brought into the political system that I think is refreshing for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the uh, sort of the spiritual aspect of it all, I mean, you know, that's been, I know, a big part of your life, big part of my life over the years. It's integrated within my brand and everything we do here. But I do notice that um, seeing it sort of in politics, sort of as as in opposition to what we normally see in politics, which is like just religion, Christianity, essentially. Uh, we're talking U.S. politics here. Um, and um, I noticed that you'll see in the mainstream, sometimes the odd commentator will really just like totally make fun of her, like, hey, get your tarot cards and get your crystal balls out and this, that, whatever, and let it, da, da, da. Um, how has that been? Like, has that actually been a discussion point inside the campaign? Like, is there too much? Is there, you know what I'm saying? Like, how are you guys navigating that? Yeah, for sure. You know, it, it, there, there's been spirited debate about that, you know, for sure. I mean, everyone ha has a view. And, you know, my view is that Marianne has to be her authentic self. You mm -hmm. know, she's not going to get headway by playing it safe or trying to adhere to some normative tradition in politics where people steer away from spiritual concepts. And yeah, as you pointed out, I mean, you know, it's funny to see some people mocking her, like Biden press secretary, Karine Saint-Jean-Pierre, who I think was was up there saying, oh, I have to look into my crystal ball and feel her aura and make trying, trying to mock and make fun of Marianne yeah. when, you know, she's probably at some yoga studio, you know, like singing <laughs> a, a mantra inspired by Marianne Williamson, first of all. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, also, you know, Joe Biden is Catholic. I don't think people make fun of him for believing in the Immaculate Conception, they're not up there like, oh, I wonder if I can just become pregnant magically. Nobody's yeah. mocking it for that, right? So it's, um, I think it's, it's, it's a way to try to undercut not her campaign and make yeah. her seem not serious, make her seem not legitimate, make her seem like the crazy self-help guru, when uh, in reality, she has a command of political history and the issues that I think far exceeds mo most candidates. Yeah, and she sort of, like obviously with with this kind of poking at there's cultural piece to this too right where you know in the in the united states it's not necessarily the case that kind of a, a I, I'll, I'll say a grounded meaningful sort of spiritual understanding is is not a huge part of um the way that the culture is built it is a lot more religious in terms of spirituality and i i think there's a meaningful distinction there but um I, I noticed you mentioned that you think it's important for her, and there's been spirited debate about this, but to be her authentic self and to show up as that. Um, it's an interesting question when talking about politics, because I, I look at a lot of politicians and I think to myself, I don't know if I'm seeing their authentic self. Like, I don't know if I see an authentic Joe Biden, you know, Justin Trudeau, um, maybe Donald Trump, you know, <laughs> what, I, what I mean by that is he is what he is, right? But um, a lot of these politicians, it feels like they're just putting on a mask. They're just putting on a face. Um, how do you, what do you, what do you, what do you respond to that in terms of the way she's showing up as an authentic self and taking risks and the way the others are kind of just putting on, uh, let's say a mask for the most part. For sure. I think you make a good point. I think actually that 
speaks to part of the appeal of Donald Trump is that he was somebody <laughs> who was unabashed, wasn't afraid to be himself. And that resonates with a lot of people who are tired of the cookie cutter candidates who come out, you know, they're not trustworthy. People can see it on their face that they're, they're giving them a show, giving them lip service on a bunch of issues. And also, right, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, aren't comfortable uh, taking their hands off the will of what is of coloring outside of the lines of what has been considered um, conventional and acceptable in the political realm. And, you know, when it comes to spirituality, for example, that means you can only really talk about spirituality in the confines of traditional religion. And I think that that's just out of step with where the American people are. I think, I think people are particularly now are exploring consciousness in, in a very dynamic way. And they're also exploring themselves in a dynamic way where they want to see more options on the presidential front. They want to see their, I think, politicians reflect more the vastness of of where the people are at and the personalities or what they're exploring in terms of their own viewpoints. And yeah, Marianne is somebody who has a very distinctive personality. And we'll see, we'll see if that resonates, but I do think that's the only way to move ahead in the political system. If we're going to break up the duopoly, if we're going to challenge the way things have been business as usual, we're not going to do that by continuing to sort of show up in our suit and tie and, and putting on the same face and saying the same things, thinking yeah. that you have to, you have to sort of reflect some kind of normative value system in order to get elected. And I think Donald Trump sort of uh, destroyed that understanding and has in, in an ironic way sort of paved the way for people to be a little bit more unconventional in the political process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's great perspective. And um, one of the things I love about, you know, just even the way we like to present things is there's, there's always a way to look at something and see just the pure negative of it, if that's what you want to do. And there's always a way to look at something that might be chaotic and say, well, is there evolutionary pressure here? And, and I think in a way, you know, Trump, there was a lot of question marks still in my head around Trump and what he really represented and what he was doing. But, um, you know, he did switch up the game and make people a little bit more like, you know what, maybe this doesn't have to be as, you know, straight and arrow. Um, maybe there is a, a bit of a different way to do it. And, and yeah, maybe it was a little stumbly to get there, but you know, you know, it is what it is. Um, you mentioned earlier about economy. Economy is always a big discussion, you know, when it comes to elections. And I know right now a lot of people are struggling. There's always, you know, discussion around national debt and debt ceilings and so on and so forth. And coming out of COVID, it was kind of a, a pretty messy time there. I think you use the words moral economy when you were describing some of her, her campaign uh, promises and so on and so forth. What, uh, what does that mean? Sure. You know, I think I think people, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, if you're on the left or you're on the right, most Americans understand that the system is rigged, that yeah. our economic system is not one where the benefit is felt by the vast majority of the population. And a moral economy looks at challenging sort of this unholy alliance between corporatocracy and government to where um, our senators, even the president, most of our politicians are essentially bought and paid for um, the power of lobbyists has really overrun our system to where the will of the people is kind of muted to the point where we actually do live in an oligarchy. And, mm -hmm. you know, Bernie Sanders was very powerful with delivering this message, but it's not something that is only relegated to the Bernie Sanders wing of the, par of the party. I think people on the right and the left now understand this. And when Marianne talks about a moral economy, she's talking about essentially the government working for the people as opposed to the people working to prop up corporate shareholders, which has essentially been the way things have been operating 
you know, um, for a number of decades now. So what does that mean? That means, um, you know, the American people actually being the beneficiary of a system to where when we're paying our tax dollars, we get a return on that investment. What is that return? Well, probably universal health care, probably, you know, if you have a, if you have kids, maybe you have paid child leave, maybe you have, you ha you have, you're able to take more vacations and time off to spend time with your family and friends and not feel like you're going to lose your job. Or, you know, if you actually do get sick, you're not going to feel like you're going to be bankrupt and lose everything because you have to go to the ER. Right. Yeah. So these, these are, you can't, in our view, you can't live in a, in a society that considers itself a moral society if we're not taking care of our people. And I think, you know, really the the mark of a, of a healthy society is how it takes care of its young and its elderly. In the yeah. United States, we, you know, our, our young people are, are suffering. Um, not just, no, I'm not just talking about college graduates who come out with, are straddled with immense debt, but also in the formative years of education, uh, zero to 10 year olds, there's a lot of cognitive uh, problems that are now surfacing because we're not putting a proper focus on nutrition, on health, on, on early childhood education. And also when you look at our elderly, many of our elderly live off, you know, $20,000, $30,000 a year. And is that a moral economy? Are they able to actually afford the basic necessities of life? Um, so when you look at who's doing well and who's not, it's essentially, you know, maybe there's 10 to 20% of people in the United States who are doing quite well and great for them, right? We want, but we want more people to be doing well because essentially that 10 to 20% are surrounded um, by economic despair and, and people really struggling. So I think, I think when it comes to a moral economy, it, com it comes from a perspective of the gains of the wealthiest country on earth need to be better distributed so that there's more stability in a society and people aren't struggling and, and, um, and riddled with anxiety and debt to the point where they feel like they can't get ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's a sort of a putting putting people first, right? I mean, if you're a government and you're really trying to actually serve the public and, and steward, you know, a country, if you want to look at it that way, um, why, why, why has it ended up the way that it is? Why are people not really being represented? And I think this is, you know, for me in particular, this is what has pulled me back from uh, being an engaged voter, let's say. So, you know, I, I, I position myself as an engaged citizen in the sense that I'm, I don't sit back and be passive and just pessimistic about the nature or state of the, uh, of the world. Um, I engage deeply. I, I challenge what people think. I have conversations. I'm trying to, you know, get people to think differently about what to do. So I'm not the type of person that just says, well, I'm not voting. I'm going to step back. But, you know, you mentioned the word oligarchy. You mentioned how, you know, the government has kind of gone out of control and um, are just running the show how they want to. My question would be, you know, within that understanding of the system being rigged and, and knowing what has happened with Bernie Sanders, where, you know, he was rigged out of, you know, being able to actually uh, have a fair chance. Do we do you feel like it could be different this time around? Like, should should people kind of hold this um, this belief, if you will? And what I mean by that is it's always nice to hold a little bit of belief. But like, is it really possible for somebody like Marianne or even RFK Jr. to break through if that's their message? Well, you know, I think that um, looking at it cynically is actually logical because when you look at, you know, when you look at how the political system has operated, and as you pointed out, um, in 2016 it was rigged against Bernie Sanders, in 2020 it was rigged against Bernie Sanders. They did the same thing, and yeah. now the DNC is trying to say, well, there's going to be no primary, there's going to be no debate. So this yeah. is about as undemocratic as it comes. However, the reason I do reserve a little bit of hope. Um, beyond just believing in a little bit of magic is that, 
is that I think people are actually really becoming more aware of just how rigged it is. You know, in 2016, not a lot of people really understood, well, was Bernie, was it really rigged against Bernie or is, is, is it just sour grapes, right? Mm -hmm. And then 2020, I think what, what happened in South Carolina said, oh, wow, yeah, they, they did really rig it against, against Bernie. Now that we're coming to this cycle and the DNC is basically blatantly just saying, yeah, there's going to be no primary. Joe Biden's the incumbent. That's that. I think you're seeing a lot of, uh, of outrage at that. And that's also why RFK and Marianne are polling in double digits. I mean, listen, yeah. I think the last poll I saw was like 36% of voters, Democratic voters. Now, this is not general election voters. Democratic voters, 36% of them want somebody other than Joe Biden. Yeah. So that to me that that's going to mount pressure on the DNC to say yeah we're going to actually have to adjudicate something here or you know the people are just going to actually overrun the system which is what we want we want i think i think the only way to challenge this corrupt system is for millions of the people to rise up and say enough is enough we're we're, we're not going to accept this anymore yeah and i completely understand why people are disillusioned i, I myself go through that where i'm there's times when i'm disillusioned as well but I do think whether it's RFK Jr., whether it's Marianne Williamson, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whether it's somebody else, somebody is eventually going to pierce this veil and break through. And yeah. I do think it's a worthwhile endeavor as well, because, listen, we have corruption within a lot of our institutions, whether it's, you know, media, religion, politics, you know, economic systems. So I, I think to say that we're just going to give up on one of those institutions and say, yeah, let's just leave it to the corrupt. Um to me, that's never been a, vi a viable solution. Yeah. Yeah, I, I very much echo the idea of, you know, trying to raise that awareness, get people to sort of push back against the system. And I guess my position has always been that uh, you don't need to be voting within the system to do that, meaning uh, I can find a way to engage. I can find a way to lift up Marianne's message, lift up RFK's message. I think the point, and I think this is why I admire what, what both of them are doing. I know we haven't talked much about RFK yet today, but uh, RFK Jr., I should say. Um, but is um, I, I admire the fact that they're doing it because you need the candidate, right? You need somebody there for everybody to point to and say, look, can't you see now that the corruption exists, right? If they're going to cast them out, right? If they're going to cast out Bernie, Bernie had to run for us to learn that the DNC was going to be as corrupt as they were, right? So it's like, I, I you know, I, I believe in this necessity to have the action taken, even if it feels like, okay, we, we kind of know that within this system, it may or may not really be a useful act from the standpoint of getting the votes, but it will it will raise awareness and it will raise, it will raise consciousness, which is really what it's about at this point anyway. So, and then of course, like you said, you know, the, the magic of, uh, you know, I, I think back to the, the ice hockey team, I, I think it was the U S team that, that one time way back in the day where they didn't really have many players and they threw together a, a you know, a, a bunch of guys that were just kind of professional hockey players sort of, and they ended up, they called the movies called miracle and it just kind of, and they ended up winning. And I think the point of that is to say like, you know, there, there is sometimes a pathway where the right thing can happen. And maybe, you know, the way our interesting inter interconnected reality works kind of produces this, wow, I really did not expect for that to happen moment. Um, you know, that could be pretty incredible. So, you know, I, I do understand the need to have that magic. Um, let me ask now that you've kind of laid out a little bit about what she believes in a little bit about kind of what's going on. When you're on the campaign trail, at least in New Hampshire, and I'm sure you've you've traveled outside the, the state as well, 
how are people connecting with Marianne's message? And, and do you feel like it's, it's quite a bit of people or it's, it's a small amount? What would you say on that? You know, it, it, it's, um, we've had events that are jam packed. We've had small intimate events, but as to me, it's really not the, the quantity of the people who show up to her events. It's more the quality of the way she's connecting. And, and it is remarkable to see how she connects with people. Um, she has a number of, of stories and narratives that she, that she spins on, on, on the stump. And also just the way that she's able to sort of go off script and fill out a room and take questions. I mean, she will take a question, whether it takes one hour or four hours until everybody has had their you know questions answered and she's had a chance to shake hands and talk with everybody. And I think what's striking to me, particularly in New Hampshire is we've gone to some counties where, you know, it's traditional democratic voters and even democratic officials who, when they show up, they're suspicious of Marianne. They're like, oh, you know, I, you know, I think she's just be, being a spoiler candidate, even though she's running in a primary, right? A spoiler candidate is usually a third party candidate. But, and they're saying, well, I don't think she can really win. And, you know, I don't think she's really serious. But after they have a chance to listen to her and get to know her a bit, um, I've seen their whole demeanor change and say, wow, like, I, I'm actually really going to consider voting for her now. So I think Marianne is still an unknown entity in the sense that people think of her as, you know, New York Times bestselling author, or they read an article about her where they say she's a self-help guru, but they don't really, they don't really know Marianne in a sense from a political entity, from a political equation to understand her command of the policies and how she really gets the rotten corruption in the system. And I think that surprises a lot of people to where when they actually have a chance to to get a chance to meet her and, and hear her out outside of what the media is spinning, they see something entirely different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and forgive me, I'm going to go back a little bit just based on that answer. You mentioned before, I think you said 36% of Democratic voters um, want somebody other than Joe Biden. Can you break that down just a smidge for a better understanding here? Now, when they do that, Democratic voters, does that include independents that sort of lean to the left or is that just re purely registered Democrats? Yeah, these are, this was a poll, a recent poll that was just purely registered Democrats. Right. So if you're, if you're bringing in independent voters, that equation changes even more. And of course, New Hampshire is an open primary state. What that means is you don't have to have a party affiliation. To, you don't have to be a registered Democrat to participate in the Democratic primary. You can go to your local town and if you're undeclared, even if you're a Republican, you can say, hey, I want to vote in the Democratic primary today. Okay, change your registration the Democrat just for 10 minutes, cast your vote, and then you can walk out and change your, your affiliation again. Yeah. So that's unique um, in the country. Not all, not all states allow you to do that, but because of that, New Hampshire is always a wild card. You know, mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders won twice here, that, which was unprecedented. He won in two consecutive primaries, which has never happened here. So that lets you know, you know, Ron Paul did well here, for example, when he ran in the primary. So it lets you know that the New Hampshire voters is a critical thinker. They're an independent-minded voter, and they don't—they—they they rarely go the way the establishment wants them to go. Which, of course, is why Joe Biden and the DNC are trying to take New Hampshire out of the process. Yeah, they're actually trying to usurp New Hampshire and replace it with South Carolina as the first voting state as payback. Because, of course, if it wasn't for Jim Clyburn in South Carolina and um, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Mike Bloomberg and everyone throwing their weight behind Joe Biden to take out Bernie Sanders, who was winning, you know, Bernie Sanders in 2021, Iowa, won New Hampshire, won Nevada. And then everyone said, oh, we got to stop this. So 
Yeah. They rigged it again. And and this is payback for South Carolina. Say basically Joe Biden saying, thank you for making me president. You know, New Hampshire's gonna have to take a back seat. But that's not, you know, playing well with the New Hampshire voter, as you would expect. Yeah. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And again, we're seeing the lack of the democratic process here in action. And and I, that's why I always laugh when I read uh, articles in the Atlantic that are like, you know, our, our you know, I'm Canadian. So I, I say this from their voice, but it's like, you know, our, our democracy here in the United States is under threat. It's like, guys, you don't have a democracy there, right? It's like, what? how are you a writer paid $250,000 a year to write for this, you know, magazine and and you still actually believe these things and maybe they don't but um i i'm curious let's let's explain this um situation around the dnc not wanting to have uh the debates and sort of what the actual like what allows them to actually do that and say that as like if if you lived in a a democratic society whereby a challenger could come and hey they have to be heard they have to be have equal opportunity what allows the actual institution of the DNC to to be able to say no we're not going to do debates well you know what's interesting is that um the DNC has a process well one, two things one they have a superdelegate process and the superdelegate process basically can overrule <laughs> the majority vote in any particular state. What that means is, let's say Marion Williamson beats Joe Biden in a particular state with the popular vote. Yeah. So she'll get a certain amount of delegates from that state. But then there are super delegates who are party officials, party insiders in that state who have more like a thousand times the voting power of any individual. Hmm. So the super delegates could vote in a way that actually makes it so that Joe Biden leaves that state with more delegates than he should, than than the popular vote would 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 have, right? So, yeah. and the sec and secondarily, there recently was actually was a lawsuit against the DNC, and the DNC actually admitted they were saying, "Look, the DNC, we have a right to essentially appoint who we want to appoint. We have a right to choose our nominee as the DNC, not as the voting populace." Yeah. So that was a really interesting revelation, and I think you know outraged a lot of people. But it's actually true. I mean, if you look at the way they operate. They have the nominee that they choose and they do everything in their power to make sure that nominee wins. And nine times out of 10 or even 10 times out of 10, that nominee will win. Um, so it's it's something that has to we need massive reform, you know, if we're ever going to have a democratic process within the DNC and the Democratic primary, um, which is ironic in the Democratic Party. But the more people are seeing this, I think the more you're going to see calls for reform. And that's why I'm actually in. Um, somewhat optimistic about this time with RFK and Marianne, not just because they have decent support, but because people are really seeing like just in, in, in blatant open view, right? In plain sight, just how rigged the system is, just how impossible it is yeah. for the people to really actually have a chance to, to elect and nominate who they want to represent them. So the more people realize this, the more you're going to see calls for reform. But, you know, I don't think it's just that. I also I also have to say that I think the quality of the candidates in the Democratic primary, of course, Marianne, I'm speaking on behalf of her, but RFK Jr. as well. I mean, these are two candidates who um, are really articulating the problems and corruption in our society with such poignant detail and such understanding and also such authenticity and yeah. integrity that I think that's why you're seeing their poll numbers reach double digits because people are really seeing, wow, you know, 
these are these two candidates are the real deal. This is what we need. Yeah. So I'm I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm uh, you know I'm glad we're going to talk about RFK a little bit here, but. Um, you know, just looking at it, I, we, we're celebrating our 15th year uh, doing this work here. And, and uh, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm going, you know, shit, like back in the day, I remember Ron Paul making a run uh, back in, it was probably 2011, 2012 sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, he was like one of the few guys that, if not the only person actually at the time that was uh, really pushing and saying all the things. Now, his focus was really on Federal Reserve and kind of exposing what was going on there. But, um, but to hear after all these years of, of doing this work and saying all these things and writing all these articles and doing all these podcasts and videos and stuff like that, talking about all these things that were never discussed in the mainstream, whether it be, you know, the nature of the rigging of elections, the corruption that goes on, all these things, to see actual candidates running that are saying those things out loud. And even here in Canada, we have, we have one guy who I will say has most of it down pat. Um, and, and that's great. Uh, he doesn't need to have it all. Nobody does, but it's like he has most right. of it down pat. I think is a really interesting uh, nod to these, this shift in consciousness that we've kind of been talking about for, for all these years, right? And, and how it is starting to show up in our, in our everyday. Um, you know, with that said, you know, RFK and Marianne, RFK Jr., I should say, I keep doing that. But, um, you know, in the United States, where do they have... A meaningful overlap in their uh, policies, and uh, where are they different? Yeah, for sure. Know. I mean, you know, I think there there's a lot more similarities than people realize between them. The clear place where they have intersectionality and overlap is in their understanding of this sort of corrupt merger between corporate power and state. So they both want to break up the the oligarchy and the corporatocracy that's really um, that that that's really plaguing our system. Um, they they both understand um, the corruption of the military-industrial complex. Now, where where they differ on that is there are some nuanced differences on the Russia-Ukraine war, for example. Um, however, they both I, I think they're both similar in the sense that they understand why we're in Ukraine. They understand that Russia has invaded Ukraine. They they, they both refer to the war as an as an illegal invasion of Ukraine of a sovereign country. I think they both also shed light on understanding the history of empire and understanding the United States and our role in the world as sort of an unsavory actor invading sovereign countries as well, like Iraq. So yeah. they're both bringing consciousness to that. I think the difference probably on, on the Russia-Ukraine war is, and I don't want to speak for RFK, but I know Marianne is really a staunch supporter of Ukraine. And I think RFK might have a little bit of different view on that in terms of where he wa how he wants to see the war play out. But they yeah. both want to see an end to the war. They both want to see our resources brought back home in a more meaningful way towards benefiting people. And they both want to actually see a massive increase in our, in our budget to reflect diplomacy and engaging with nations on a sense of commonality and, and economic trade as opposed to trying to dominate nations through military power. So from that standpoint, I think they on the big issues, they're very similar. Obviously, there's some differences when it comes to pandemic policy and vaccines, and we can talk about that as well. But even those differences aren't as pronounced as I think people think they are. Um, so really, to me, you know, Marianne and RFK are, e even though there, there are some real differences between them, when it comes to the big issues, they're really in unison in understanding where the problems are. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that you know, for the most part, from what I what I can see, it it seems to make sense. And you did mention COVID and some maybe some, some minor difference in policies there. And you know, maybe that's on a lot of people's minds. There is a lot of discussion about you know uh, what are they calling it, disease X, and and new pandemics coming and these sorts of things. And maybe that's a going to be a big deal for a lot of people. You know, it's hard to say. I, I'm going to ask a question that to some people might sound like outrageous. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you know. It wouldn't be the first time in the United States' history, uh, maybe people could say that we don't know this for sure, um, but that a candidate that sneaks through and uh, doesn't play ball is just taken out. Um, I, I, I don't think that it's unreasonable to say that a, a, a country where you have an oligarchy and these powerful, powerful people are willing to kill people to get what they want, um, has this come up at all? in thoughts or conversations from what you know um, and what you're willing to share with regards to if, are they going down what could be perceived as dangerous territory? If they were to win, what's to say that the, the powerful oligarchs behind the scenes don't, don't uh, try and push back if they don't play ball? Well, it, it has come up. Um, but I think they're, you know, just speaking for Marianne, when, when I'm seeing her on the trail, there's, there's a fearlessness about her. Um, mm -hmm. She understands that she's not naive, but I think for her, this is a higher calling. So she's she's willing to throw herself into that fray, into that into that danger, into that risk, if you will, to to fight for what she believes is necessary. Um, you know, I don't think you can, whether you're Marion Williamson or RFK Jr. I don't think you go into this lightly. I think you go into this understanding those risks and saying. Regardless of that, you know, there's sort of an honor to weighing into this with the moral courage that Marianne and RFK Jr. are, are, are wading into this with. And I think in understanding that risk, you know, obviously you take precautions to hope that doesn't happen. But you, you, I think you have to sort of hinge on your faith and belief that, you know, I'm in this for a particular reason and I'm guided by something even beyond myself. So um let the let the cards fall where they may and let and but but I, I think that risk and that danger doesn't deter them from their path, right? Maybe some people would say, well I don't want to go into this, it's too dangerous or the system's too corrupt, the powers that be are too mighty. But for them there's a sense of fearlessness. And I really admire and respect that. I mean it's one of the reasons why I'm I'm not just a supporter of Marianne, but working with her. And it's also one of the reasons why I admire RFK Jr. Yeah. Well said. And I think it's sort of a testament to the the idea that um, you can live your life recognizing the potential dangers uh, that do exist in everyday society, whether you're a person or whether you're running for uh, a president, um, and and yet still operate with a fearlessness. And, and what's, what's going on in that body? What's going on in that mind and that consciousness that's able to do that? And why are some of us who are not in those positions so so ridden and riddled with with fear? And um, I, I think it just shows the possibility that we truly do have as beings to kind of operate from the standpoint of just pure, authentic uh, life and and not be be riddled by fear. And, and I know media and so forth is always trying to sort of push it down our throats. But is it possible for us to kind of, you know, expand beyond and step up as everyday people to just live a fearless life? And of course, I think the answer is is yay. But um, obviously, as we kind of move forward with the election process here and, and um, you know, 
starting to get to the point where, hey, is, you know, our debates going to happen or are they not? Um, what do you see happening? Do you think that they could break through? And I mean, they are still saying that there's going to be no debates, but do you see potentiality that um, there's going to be a breakthrough and maybe debates will take place? I do, because we're still so early in the process. Uh, but even though we are so early in the process, both of them are still polling in double digits. So pressure will mount. I mean, I think six months down the line, if this continues to go on the trajectory it's going, I don't see how it's going to be tenable for them not to say, yeah, th these aren't viable challengers. Yeah. You know, um, it'd be different if they were polling at like less than 1% each. But yeah. they're consistently polling in double digits and people are also seeing with their own eyes what's happening. Just the yeah. momentum that both of these candidates are building to the point where it's going to be very interesting. Put it this way. I think if 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 Biden and the DNC decide not to debate and and the trajectory goes continues to move as it is right now, I think the outrage is going to be immense and it's going to it's going to forever fracture the Democratic Party. I think it'll be a fatal blow that will actually lead to a sort of massive exodus of people from the Democratic Party and into maybe an independent or a new party energy. And it's and I think it'll be a, a really <laughs> a really dangerous and incalculable mistake by the Democratic Party to do that. I. Uh... I'm not sure that would be dangerous. And I say that because I think sometimes this is how it needs to go. You know what I mean? Um, like, it's almost like if you're, if you're really trying to maintain the Democratic Party for what it is and what it has been, you know, you might say it's dangerous, right? But, but I, I think it's almost like it's lost. And I, it's lost that initial roots of like true liberalism and true progressiveness. And, and maybe this is kind of that moment where that's exposed and that Democratic Party is left behind and something emerges that is uh, the actual representation of, of progression again. Um, what are your thoughts on that? No, I agree completely. When I, when I mean dangerous, let me clarify, I mean dangerous to the power structure of the Democratic Party. Mm. Like I actually, I actually think their arrogance... I, and blindly not being able to see what everyone else is seeing just because they're so intent on holding on to their power. Yeah. I think this, this will be a step too far to the yeah. point where it'll actually destroy them from within, as opposed to destroying them from an insurgency outside, which mm. I think we'd all love to see because there has to be massive reform within yeah. the party. Right. So that's what I mean. I don't mean dangerous in the sense that it's, you know, dangerous and hopefully it doesn't happen. I think, right. This is a danger that, we should welcome. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, so let's say, you know, we go through this process. We don't, we don't get to, uh, uh, debates or maybe we do get to debates and, and we find out it's a Bernie Sanders all over again and things are rigged in a particular way. Do you think Marianne or RFK Jr. Go independent? You know, I, I'd have to let them answer that. I don't know. Um, from my perspective, you know, I think that's something that should be on the table. You know, I don't think, I, I know, I know both of them are, they're of the mindset they're going to win the nomination. And I think you have to be of that mindset right now. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, when it comes to this game, this political system, you have to keep an option like that on the table just to keep people honest. You know, there's, there's always this tradition that people say, well, if you don't win, are you going to support the nominee? Are you going to support Joe Biden? And I do like the fact that both Marianne and RFK Jr. aren't playing that game. They're, they're basically saying, well, let's, let's see how this primary process is run. Let's see if, if it's actually a legitimate primary. Are they going to allow democracy to prevail? Are they going to allow open debates? And, you know, if the answer is no, I think they, they have to explore all angles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think that it will be interesting. And I think it's almost like, you know, for people on the outside watching, and I've gone through this thought myself, but it's like, I'm just gonna have to take it one day at a time and kind of see, you know, go through little by little, see the process, watch it unfold, see how awareness out there is, is continuing to build um, and kind of go from there. And it, it puts us in this position where it likes so many other things in life at the moment, you know, within our society, we seem to be existing in, in this like really uncertain a sort of unstable ground where it's like, you know, normally it would be like, yeah, no, no, I'm running in an election. You know, I'm just going to give it my all and just kind of see it through. But there's, but there's all this other strategy in this conversation that kind of puts, you know, us on this like uncertain, unstable ground. And, and like I said, it seems that way with, with so many things out there right now. Um, I'm curious as to what qualities in that context, what qualities within the collective consciousness of the United States going into this election, what qualities are you seeing in the way people are thinking and feeling? Like, what are some things you could sort of bring up and discuss, especially as it relates to this election? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that there is something different, different in this cycle from previous cycles to me. Yes, the, the frustration is there, the people understanding the corruption, the people feeling like they're not being represented. But I think there's also more of more of an optimistic hope. I mean, I'm seeing people support Marianne and RFK Jr. who before have written off the political process, said they would never get involved. They would never support any candidate. It's, you know, it's all a sham. There's no way I would ever participate in this. And to me, that's encouraging because a lot of those people are very good people, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of people who I see disillusioned by the political process are disillusioned for the right reasons. Um, and, you know, at least in the United States, our our leaders are supposed to be a representation of where the people are. They're not supposed to only be a class of bankers, lawyers, and and stock owners, and people who are multimillionaires, as is the case with our senators now, or inside traders like Nancy Pelosi, right? You know, we're supposed to be reflective of the vast tapestry of the United States and where the people are at. And I think with Marion Williamson, you're seeing that, with RFK Jr., you're seeing that. And but they're representing something a little bit different, even from Bernie Sanders. I would say they're even going a step beyond where Bernie went. Yeah. Because Bernie is still trying to operate within the system and do what he can from the inside, which I admire. I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. But when the system is as corrupt as it is, I think Marianne Williamson understands that there has to be a complete U-turn. There can't just be nibbling on the edges and incrementalism and trying to fix a broken system. I mean, yeah. there has to be a complete uprooting of the system to the point where we lay the foundation for something brand new. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that's also, when I referred earlier to the magic of allowing sort of space for, for miracles to occur, to occur. I mean, this is something that has been actually a common thread in American history. I mean, you know, think about the time of, of the 1700s when sort of a ragtag group of Americans said, hey, we we're gonna go against the biggest empire in the world and we're gonna overthrow and cause a revolution and today, that's why we enjoy a lot of the rights we have, like property rights, First Amendment, right of freedom of expression, which is under attack. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also why Marianne and RFK Jr. are running. They understand these rights are under attack and they're being thwarted. And, and Marianne Williamson, particularly in her Economic Bill of Rights, and when she uh, talks about basically the, the policy prescription she has, it's to not just preserve these rights, but even go beyond and expand these rights to where we have a, a more sense of universality in terms of 
the freedom, liberty, and, and the rights that we're supposed to be enjoying as human beings, not just as American citizens, but as people of the planet, right? So yeah. um, from that standpoint, I think that that's what's resonating with people to where it's, it's tapping into a consciousness of an evolutionary process that is already happening on the ground. And I think we're finally starting to see some sort of as, as above, so below resonation mm -hmm. to the point where if that's really happening on the ground amongst the people, you should see that reflected in the body politic. You should see some candidates come through that are reflecting that. You, you know, in media, you should see some new media come, come through that's reflecting that. And I think we're starting to see that. It, yeah. I understand it's taking too long. People are frustrated, mm -hmm. but these things don't happen overnight. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I would 100 percent agree um, with the idea that we are starting to see it come through. And, and, you know, I'll be the first to admit that when I first started doing this work back in 2009, I I did think things were going to probably move a little faster uh, in some ways. But when I look at it back at it now, 15 years later, I go, you know what? A lot has changed. You know, like I said earlier in the show, you know, there's candidates now that I actually would believe in. I don't think I've ever seen a can. I mean, Ron Paul was a guy where I was like, yeah, you know, he wants to audit the Fed. Okay, that's interesting, whatever, let it, uh, um, but it's not all that revolutionary, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's attacking, if you will, one of the major corrupt forces of all of societal design uh, in the United States, or in, in, I should say any country that has central banking. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it, it didn't fully jive, but, but it was, it was great. It was, it was progress. Right. Um, whereas now it's like, I feel like, you know, these uh, RFK Jr. And, and Marianne, there's a lot more overlap even in, within my own conscious and my own mind. Um, but you mentioned earlier about Marianne and wanting to kind of pull this massive U-turn on, on systems. And I've thought a lot about systems design and, and, um, designing a new society. I mean, it's been a huge part of, of, of our work here for, for the past while. And the number one thing I run into when you suggest something like, you know, the entire system kind of needs to be redone. We need that full U-turn, as you described. The, the first thing that comes up to people is they go, well, hold on. I can't wrap my mind around something that I don't even know what it would look like and what that would mean. And what, what do you mean whole systems? Like what in the system is going to change? Are we talking about the end of capitalism? Are we talking about the end of, you know, the, the democratic process as we know it today? Like what are we talking about here? Well, I mean, when it comes to the economy, I, you know, I think, you know, Marianne is, is a capitalist, um, RFK Jr. is a capitalist. So it's, but we don't have capitalism. Like people think we have capitalism in the United States. Capitalism allows for fair competition. We have unfair competition and sort of the socialism for the rich. So a, a just capitalist system cannot exist without a moral economy behind it. I mean, these were even some of the founding principles of capitalism where they said in order for a free market to work, there has to be equal access to it. There has to be more people have to actually have access to capital in order for capitalism to thrive. Yeah. So, um, so it's not dismantling capitalism. What it is is actually um, reinstilling the fundamental principles of free economy and also not allowing such consolidation of power to where all of our industries are monopolized to the point where now they control the government. They control who gets in and sets policy, who's regulating products, who's who's allowing for certain pharmaceutical products to, to actually run rampant across the country with no regulation, right? So when you look at the major industries, defense, pharmaceutical industries, um, big oil, big agriculture, they have taken a stranglehold 
over our politicians. They have taken a stranglehold over public policy. They are essentially setting public policy in all these different dimensions. So U-turn means dismantling that system and restoring the power to where it should be within the people so, so that these industries are actually reflecting the will of the people and are making people healthier, wealthier, and in a better position to where they can strive and, and basically pursue their, their best life, right? So when we talk about a U-turn, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, well said. That, that definitely uh, clears it up a little bit there. Um, I, we kind of touched on this earlier, but I'm going to sort of re-ask it again to give you a, a different way of sort of discussing it. Um, imagine I'm an American citizen uh, because, you know, I'm a Canadian citizen, so it's a little bit of a different story here. But And you're, you're sort of convincing me as, as David Helfrich to, to vote in this upcoming election. And, and I've shared with you that I believe in the nature of, of Marianne and, and RFK Jr., for example, running and, and raising this awareness. Uh, but you're trying to convince me to go out there and vote. Um, what would you say? Well, I would say if, if you're looking at these candidates, let's say you're looking at Marianne Williamson and you see her speak and you feel something in your core that says, you know, this woman's a real deal, right? Like she's, she's representing my values. She's reflecting something. She's touching me from a spiritual point of view. Um, from a political point of view, she has a command of the issues well beyond Joe Biden. And this is somebody who I would trust. Then cast your vote for her. But I would never tell somebody to cast their vote for somebody they don't believe in. Like, I don't believe you should just vote. Like everyone's like, oh, just vote no matter. And then that's, then you can just walk away with your hands clean as long as you vote. I think it's up to, it's up to leaders to actually present themselves in a way that inspires people to vote. And I think Marion Williamson is an aspirational candidate. RFK Jr. is an aspirational candidate. They're inspiring people to get out there and, and activate into this political process. And that's what it takes to get millions of people to actually come back into the political process. So if you feel within these candidates that there's something that strikes you to your core and, and really animates you to be more active, then by all means vote. But I would also say if they don't, then don't vote. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's up to the leaders to, to actually inspire you to do that. However, I, what I would say to the cynic is to keep is to keep open the potential that somebody can actually be a good leader. Right. Yeah. That there can actually be a president who isn't corrupt, because I think now we're so used to this idea that in order to be a president, you have to be corrupt. The two and two are the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that hasn't always been the case, even in our country. So. It's up to each generation, each subsequent generation to sort of repair and reform a system and to strive for even more perfection of the way the system operates. If we would have walked away at, you know, at the Declaration of Independence, there would have been no country. You know, if the abolitionists would have said slavery is too evil, you know, too many, there's too much power and too much money into into the um, slave trade, into Southern slavery then we would have never had abolition. You know, if women would have said, oh, there's no way we'll ever have, you know, ever be able to participate in the franchise and vote, there would have been no women's suffrage movement, mm-hmm. right? And the civil rights movement and so on and so on. Well, we have a unique challenge in this generation to go after a similar type of corruption that has too far been, I think, under a veneer that people haven't really understood it. But now that it's being demystified, people are seeing the corruption at the core. So now it's time for our generation to do something. So if you feel that there's a leader out there and maybe that leader is you to participate in your own community, right? I would encourage you to be active. What's your, yeah. What do you have to lose? Yeah. 
Well, that's that's well said, and you know, I, I got to say that the way you describe that is is typically how I I go about it, and I've been wrestling with myself to some extent, looking at the upcoming uh, Canadian election because. Um, obviously, you know, my position is that Trudeau is, is really not a good candidate whatsoever in, a, in virtually any way, shape or form. I think he's, he's horrible for, uh, the nature of, of the country and where it's going. And I, I think Jagmeet Singh, which is the leader of the NDP party, um, he's, he's just as bad and, and, but he's a, he's a little bit, I don't know, he's a little bit more undercover, just as bad. And, um, and then you have Pierre Polyev. So he's the leader of the, uh, the conservative party and, um, he, you know, he says a lot of things that uh, overlap with me, um, you know, pushing back against Trudeau, pushing back against globalism, pushing back against, um, you know, the nature of the Great Reset. And a lot of these discussions, he was very outspoken about COVID policy, but he doesn't resonate with me. He's he I, you know, I, I don't want to I don't know him one on one sitting across from him on a table. And but the way he presents himself in public, he's a smart, sharp individual, but he's a low quality individual in my mind. Um, he, he's, he's rude. He's disrespectful. He has all these like different little pieces to the puzzle that I'm not into. And so I've been wrestling to myself. I'm like, man, if you want to get, if you want to get some of these other leaders out of, of power, it's like, well, maybe I do vote for Pierre because there is somewhat of an overlap, but, but, but he doesn't inspire me to vote. And mm -hmm. so it's an interesting little wrestle, uh, where I'm like, you know, where do you, where do you draw that line? Right. Well, it was, yeah, it's an interesting question, right? Because, and at the same time, there's never going to be a candidate who, like, you agree with 100% of the time, right? Oh, no, never. I, yeah. I think, right. It'd be rare to find somebody where, yeah, on every issue, I'm in 100% lockstep agreement with this candidate. I mean, so we're not looking for perfection necessarily, but what we're looking for is authenticity, integrity, yeah. and somebody where even if you disagree with them, you know they're coming from a perspective of good faith. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's the responsibility of leadership to present itself in a way that inspires people to come out and resonate with that. And if they don't, that speaks to, that speaks to something as well. Cause even withholding your vote is, is still a, an act of protest and saying, yeah. or even voting third party or new party for somebody who may be polling a less than 1%. That's still to me a more productive process. Yeah. They're just sort of saying, I'm not going to, I'm just going to completely excise myself from this process forever because I'm not leaving any room for the fact, for the possibility that there could be a leader who emerges who I resonate with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To take it even deeper. It's like, I look at RFK Jr. And Marianne and, and I'm legitimately inspired within my physiology. Like I can feel it. Like, yeah. and I think I've shared with you and Madhava multiple times, like just like this idea of like something feels different. This has freedom convoy energy, like something feels different here. And, um, and and you mentioned just kind of maintaining that integrity and that like you know showing up to the situation and just being fully authentic and and that, that's what that's what when I look at Pierre Polyev the guy here in Canada um, I I feel like he's playing a game more than he's showing up authentically and I feel like he's well, the way he responds to the opposition is the same low quality behavior that the opposition or that his opposition is pushing back on him. And it's just this, this low quality behavior going back and forth. And I, I'm just not into it. I, I just, I can't do it. And, and whereas like, I don't agree with everything, Marianne. I mean, I've, I've been somewhat critical of Marianne when she first ran uh, in the previous election there. Um, but also in favor of her on some of my content as well. Um, and I'm sure with RFK, there's aspects of his character that I wouldn't resonate with, but there's, there is that felt sense of inspiration and it's, it's, it's palatable. Um, and I just don't have that here with any candidate in Canada. And, and, um, 
I think that's what I'm waiting for. I think maybe I answered my own question is I'm looking for that felt sense. And, and I, I think I'm inter like I'm, I'm reflective enough as a person where I know I'm not going to fall into that trap of like, well, somebody has to be perfect. Right. Um, and somebody has to have every quality. Um, but I want to have that felt sense of, of, of inspiration. And I think for sure. And I think like what you said is really powerful about just filling in your physiology because that, you know, that doesn't lie. Right. Like, sometimes your mind can play a little trick on you, but when you really tapped into how you feel and, 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 and your sensory and sort of your five senses and beyond, like that speaks pretty kind of truth to, to your own being. And, you know, it's interesting. I appreciate you educating me on the Canadian process there. I'm aware of some of those names you mentioned, but you know, what's also interesting to me is there's sort of a, a cyclical nature to, to how some of these integral leaders and, and energies come to come to surface. Right. And, you know, Trudeau's been in power for how long now? He's been there for a while, right? Eight years, maybe, maybe longer than that. Uh, yeah, he's coming up on, on about eight, if I yeah. remember correctly. Right. So it's, you know, I, th I think the, I think the, you know, the soil is fertile and it's ripe in Canada for something new to emerge. You know, yeah. after eight years, there's a sense of stagnancy anyway, even with a leader. Um, let's say there was a leader even you probably resonated with, you'd probably be ready for something new after eight to 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways he, you know, it's interesting going back to just the nature of media, the nature of, of the oligarchy, the nature of powerful interests behind the scenes. Um, that question has to come into play because if you look at what Trudeau has in terms of corruption, in terms of scandals, in terms of all these things, it's immense. It's like absolutely immense. His behavior during the Freedom Convoy was, it, it was so backwards to anything you might, you know, consider quote, you know, Canadian culture, right? Like he was operating as such a low quality individual that it was like almost everybody saw it, right? Even his supporters were like, well, you know, you know, right? And so it was kind of like, why is he being protected so aggressively? Whereas, you know, Trump has a piece of toilet paper attached to his shoe and the media is absolutely killing the guy, right? So there's something to be said. And I think people should be doing a better job as citizens to be asking these types of questions. Like, why is this candidate over here being destroyed for every single thing that they say? And this candidate over here is being protected for every single thing that they say. And yet they are so, they're doing equally you know, sort of bad things like what's going on there. And I, I think it's, it's just paramount that we start thinking in deeper layers like that. If we want to see, um, progress to, you know, to some extent, because by staying ignorant to those types of questions is, is not really helping us. I don't think. For sure. And I, I, you know, I think, um, when you talk about the freedom convoy, it's always fascinating me to look at that as sort of a case study, because, you know, to me, regardless of if you agree with, uh, the freedom combo or not, if you're the leader of a country and you, and there's zero effort for you to empathize and understand where they're coming from and to meet with them, the people you're supposed to be representing, that signals to people that not only are you out of touch, but you don't really even care about the plight of the people. You don't, yep. you, you, you have no connective tissue to the struggles that everyday people are dealing with and the reason, and, and the reason why they have grievances. So a real leader actually taps into that and wants to understand that, wants to feel that deep within their core to say, okay, um, you know, let, help me understand, right? As opposed to you have no right to protest. You, where's your permit, as he said, right? Yeah. 
and, and basically curtailing these rights to protest and these rights to for people to have an outlet to express their grievances. And to me, a real leader, even if they don't necessarily agree with the nature of the core of those grievances, will at least give a platform to it and say, let's let's try to find a solution here, as opposed to you have no right to protest and that's that. And um, you know, I think as you mentioned, I know a lot a lot of people who are Trudeau supporters who have been very vocal critics of the way he's handled that. And I think it's been a very, you know, just his leadership overall throughout the past two, three years. Um has, I think, almost disqualified him from uh, still being in this position and, and really overshadowed any of the posit- uh, positive things he's done earlier in his tenure. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I, as you were talking, I was just really feeling in, in, in into myself when I was like listening to just the idea of like connecting, a leader connecting with a citizenry and and I go back to what I said earlier just this this felt sense of inspiration towards particular uh, people versus others and even when I look at somebody like say Trudeau or I look at Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader I I want to say that that I feel like it's a it's a brain just talking and the heart's not turned on yeah and mm-hmm. when when I listen to to RFK and Marianne I feel like the heart's turned on I feel like I can actually sense a connection to their legitimate empathetic plight, or sorry, a connection to the plight of the people. Whereas Polyev, although his actions look like they're representing that, it seems so intellectualized that it feels flimsy, that at the right time or the right moment, it can just be pushed over with the right words, as opposed to, no, I'm deeply connected to something that tells me this is how I'm guided forward. And uh, I think that's that's just such a, a palatable. It's like it's super hard to ignore that. Um, and uh, and yeah, you want to see that in more people. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's an intelligence to the heart as well, right? Mm-hmm. And people, and, and we've talked about sort of how a lot of leaders over intellectualize things, or yeah. people when are analyzing a situation to where you know you try to intellectualize it to the point where you feel like you can explain away everything with intellect and logic, but if you're not tapped into really feeling and trying to understand things from an empathetic level, and there's no opening in your heart space, you can ent- intellectualize things all day, but you're not going to connect. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, Marianne understands the connection of the mind heart. So does RFK Jr. And they're unapologetic about that, which I think is refreshing. Yeah. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of people, when they get into these conventional spaces, they feel like, they're going to lose credibility if they talk about these things, right? Yeah, yeah. Like people are going to um, not understand it or media, like or they're going to try to mock them about it. But it, but when you really tapped into that, you, you realize you don't really even care if those people mock you because you know you're speaking to sort of a larger energy. And most people who are tapped into this can see beyond that. So um, I think it's well said, and we still deal with that in our political system as well. I mean, there's still an over-intellectualization. There's still a sense that, you can't show up as completely your authentic self, but that's what both of these candidates are challenging. They're challenging yeah. that status quo because that status quo is not working for people. Yeah, I think I think it's a perfect, uh, perfect time to be doing that. It's a perfect way to end this conversation because that is probably one of the biggest reflection points that I think people need to think about is, are we voting for the sake of voting or are we voting because the authenticity, the true authenticity of somebody is inspiring us? And how do you know? 
what, what do you look for within yourself, within your body, within your system to tell you that somebody's being authentic? Maybe those are some, some final words. Do you have any last thoughts? Well, hundred percent. And I, you know, last thing I would say is, you know, these political parties want to survive in the United States, Republicans and Democrats, they have to present authenticity to the people. I don't think people are going to stand for Joe Biden and Donald Trump anymore. I think people want to see something that is more reflective and expansive and represent and represent some sort of advancement in our system. Um, so, you know, I think we have those candidates and give them a listen. That's it. That's all. David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming. Appreciate you, Joe. It's good to be with you. All righty. Well, that's it. That's all. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I want to thank the members of the Explore Lounge who are helping us to continue doing this work. If you want to support this podcast and all of the work we do here at the Pulse and Collective Evolution, consider becoming a member of our Explore Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free, and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of changemakers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's dot O-N-E, to learn more.